Good morning, good morning. Happy Father's Day to all the dads. It's the one day a year that we talk about you in a good way. Great to see you in church this morning. Uh, as Randy was singing, I just felt a, uh, a sweet peace in the, in the room today. And uh, I never want to get so comfortable with church or with God that you come in expecting something to go the way you expect it to go. And there's a tenderness here this morning. There's a peace here this morning. You know, sometimes it's not about who else is here. What matters is he's here. And the Bible says, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in the midst. And so wherever you're at today, he's with you. And it's encouraging to have his presence this morning. I want to jump straight into the word. If you have your Bible this morning, go with me to Psalm chapter 9. Psalm chapter 9 is where we'll be today. And uh, as always, want to welcome those that are with us for the first time or maybe second time. I've just been sensing this summer is a summer of growth uh, for our church and for our community. Not just in terms of growth, like there's more people coming to church, but in terms of you're learning things about God this summer that maybe you haven't learned before. And so uh, all this month we've been talking about the character of God and what it means to know him and how we desire to serve him. And uh, last week we were in Psalm chapter 8, and I was supposed to go to Psalm chapter 20 this week, but I, I can't get out of Psalm chapter 9. And so we're going to go through it this morning. Psalm chapter 9, starting in verse 1. Here is the word of the Lord. It says, I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. Someone say whole heart. Okay, you can't expect whole blessings from God if you're approaching him with a half heart. Okay, we, we want the benefits of the wholeness and fullness of God, but sometimes we approach him with half of what we really are. The psalmist says, I'm going to thank him with my whole heart. I will recount of all your wonderful deeds. I will be glad and exult in you, and I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. When my enemies turn back, because he has enemies. The writer of this psalm is honest. I have enemies. When my enemies turn back, they stumble and perish before your presence. For you have maintained my just cause. You have sat on the throne giving righteous judgment, and you have rebuked the nations. You have made the wicked perish, and you have blotted out the name forever and ever. The enemy came to an end in everlasting ruins, and their cities you rooted out. The very memory of them has perished. But the Lord sits enthroned forever, and he has established his throne for justice. We, we're going to go through the whole psalm, if you haven't noticed by now. Okay, let's go to verse 9. It says this in verse 9, The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. And those who know your name put their trust in you. This is where I want to drive your attention this morning. Those who know your name put their trust in you. O oh Lord, for you have not forsaken those who seek you. I want to talk to you this morning a message uh, that, that we're entitling very simply, Trusted with Trouble. Trusted with Trouble. Trusted with Trouble. Would you pray with me again? Father, thank you for the opportunity to open your word this morning. Oh, thank you for this community. We lift up every town, every city, every province. We lift up Chautauqua County to you this morning. We thank you that you're not done with this area. Thank you that when we gather as Christians, we're believing you're speaking to us, but you're also speaking to us for others. And so today, whether the word is for us, just for us, or for us to give to someone else, let us hear it with open ears and understand what you're trying to show us. 
So we love you this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 One of the things that I've kind of always tried to tell new believers, when a new person comes to know, know Jesus, or somebody in our church gets baptized, or somebody in our church takes a big spiritual step, uh, one thing I often try to tell people is be ready for trouble to come your way. Uh, there's something significant about being a Christian. Jesus actually said this. He says, if you're going to be a Christian and you're going to follow me, he says, I want you to be aware in this life you will have trouble. Someone say trouble. So the son of God, the one that came to die for us, told us that in this life we were going to have things happen that weren't good. And so any Christian that thinks God comes into our life to just make everything better might be missing what better actually means. Not better in a sense that all your situations change, but better in a sense that your perspective towards those situations changes. And so Jesus said there would be trouble. And so whenever I meet someone that's a new Christian, I always tell them, not in like a scary way, like the devil's going to come for you, you know, but just kind of like, hey, now that you're following Jesus, um, just know not everybody is going to see things the way you see them. And oftentimes we can expect once we're on fire for Jesus, everybody else should be on fire for Jesus. And the moment we come to our family and we say, you know, I love Jesus now. And they go, no, you don't. It, it hits us at our core. You know, I, I got saved from a dark past, like a past that if I were to run into people from my past, they wouldn't even believe that this is what I'm doing with my life yeah, now. Yeah. And, and there's times where you can easily look at those seasons and judge them as that's the worst thing that ever happened. A mentor told me a, a long time ago, don't judge your life year by year. It's best to judge it in decades. Because what happens in one year might seem like a curse, but five years later, that could be the best thing that you needed. Okay, it's better to not evaluate where you are just from the moment. Trouble comes to test us more than it does to take us out. Trouble comes to expose what we believe about God rather than how bad life actually is. I'm drawn to verse 10 of this psalm. The psalmist says, and those who know your name put their trust in you. Consider what he's actually telling us. If you're new to the Christian scriptures, uh, we, we, we teach out of this book every time we get together. And this book is actually more than one book. It's, it's 66 books. We consider it a library that tells one story about God. And uh, the book of Psalms is a book of poetry. This is meant to be artistic. This is meant to be an expression of song or an expression of creativity. You know, you ever been having a bad day and then that one song? comes on the radio and all of a sudden you just start feeling better. You know, I, I, this happened to me the other day. Y'all might laugh at me, but I was listening to The Temptations. I was listening to my girl. Yeah, yeah you know, once that dun, 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 dun. As soon as that little bass line came in, my, 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 like my, my soul was like uplifted. And I was like, oh, I love this song. And I was just cruising, listening to it. Okay, that's the power of a song. How much more with eternal lyrics about an eternal God? I mean, if a song on the radio can lift you up, how much more can a song about your creator change your life? So the psalmist is very artistic in how he talks about God. And he says in verse 10, just to bring it again, he says, those who know your name put their trust in you. I've met a lot of people today that, that, that don't trust God. They don't even believe in God. And most of the time, it's because they don't follow the first part of this verse. They don't even know God. So they go, I don't believe in that. I reject that. I reject that teaching. That is not right. That is wrong. And, and they're trying to know the law of God without knowing the character of God. 
And hear me today, especially young people in the room today, if you approach the Bible and you look at it all, this is the word of God, and you want to know the word, but you don't want to know the character of God, you might get confused. And some of the things that he says in this book might make you seem like he's coming against me, when really when you know his character, he's actually doing it to show you who you are, to show you how much he loves you, to show you what he has for you, to show you that he didn't design you to walk around letting trouble overtake you. He made you in such a way to depend on him. And so those who know him put their trust in him. The word trust means firm belief in the reliability, in the truth, the ability of strength of someone or something. So to trust is to have a firm belief in something. It's it's like the chair you're sitting in this morning. You've been in this room. You've seen these chairs. You don't really trust the chair until you actually sit in the chair. The chair has four legs. You can look at it and say, oh, yeah, that's a chair, and I believe in that chair. But do you really believe until you yourself are sitting in it and being carried by what you say you believe in? It's the same about God. Yeah, I believe in God. Yeah, I believe in God. It's different when you sit and get close with who he actually is. Later on in the Psalms, the the writer would say this, Psalm chapter 20, verse 7, he would say, some trust, some have a firm reliability on chariots and some trust in horses. But we trust in the name of the Lord, our God. And so the psalmist says some people trust more in these advancements than they do the power of God alone. And I want to encourage someone today. There is no easy way when you're following Jesus. Okay, the Bible makes it clear that the the, the way he calls us to live is narrow. And when I look at Psalm chapter 20, I, I see, yes, a military language, okay? In those days, if you had a chariot and you had a horse in battlefield, right away, you were up. You had a severe advantage against your opponent, okay? If you could have some chariots in those days when you went to battle, that meant that you had a way to get out of there if things got bad, or you were able to continue to go against your enemy as they retreated in quick velocity and go quick. And so the psalmist is almost likening an actual battle to our spiritual lives, And he's saying some people trust in the things that are going to get them there quicker. Some people trust in the the, the shortcuts. We choose to trust in the name of the Lord our God. The name of the Lord our God is not always quick and it's not always easy, but it's definitely a lot more worthwhile. I remember sixth grade living in uh, Pembroke, Massachusetts, over here on the East Coast, going to Habamock uh, schools, what it was called, Habamock. That's right. I remember it just because it was called Habamock. And uh, in sixth grade, we had to run the mile. Y'all remember going to PE, having to run the mile? Yes, I was one of those kids that did not like to run the mile. I just wasn't excited about it. At Habamock, we had to put on a uniform, so we had a PE shirt, PE shorts, right? It was like red and then some like heather gray shirt. And I remember putting it on and just eventually kind of slowly, I was one of those kids that ran like this. <laughs> There's always those like really intense kids that are just whoom, like they're running the Boston Marathon or something, you know, they're just gone. And so we're running this mile, and I probably get to the first quarter mile, and we're supposed to go around the track twice and then kind of like over to the field and then around the woods, and then we got there. And I remember going around the track twice and coming to a point where like the woods were there, and I was like, you know, I could probably cut across the woods here and just end up where the PE, you know, finish line is. And so I, you know, run in with my two friends or whatever, and I'm like, you know, I'm going to just tie my shoe and kind of jumped into the woods and just cut across and got to the other side. And eventually I crossed the finish line, and it's awesome. And I get to the finish line, and I remember seeing all these other students, and they all had their Heather Gray shirt, and they had their red shorts on, but they had a water bottle that had the school's logo on it that was the same color as the shirt and the shorts. And I was like, and every kid that was at the finish line had the water bottle. 
And I'm sitting there going like, wait a minute, wait a minute. I like the color of the shorts. I want the water bottle. And what had happened was, I guess on the other side of the woods, there was teachers that were giving away these water bottles to every student that went by. But because I had cut through, I actually missed what was actually set up for me. Okay, it's okay. It's an easy illustration to show you in your life, there will be temptations to take the easy way. And like David is saying in this psalm, some trust in chariots and horses, the easy way. Okay, you know how easy it would be to just jump on a horse in those days, get to where you needed to go. But David knew putting my trust in man-made things will only get me so far. Putting my trust in what man can put together will only get me so far. Don't cheat God out of the glory by coming up with your own solution instead of trusting him. Are you hearing me this morning? Sometimes he wants us to trust longer than we care because he wants us to know like up to this point, you trust in yourself. But once you get past your own comfort and you get past what you depend on, you encounter God in a way you never knew. That's trust. You know, trust is when you, you give out of a resource that sometimes you don't feel you have. It doesn't make sense, the life he called us to. But to trust him is to go beyond yourself and put your faith in something bigger than yourself. So I want to look at the text this morning and I want to ask you, what would trusting Jesus actually look like in your life? If you were to make a decision today and, and, and you say, maybe I trust Jesus, I'm a Christian. I believe he died for me. I believe that he rose again. I confess all the creeds. I'm with it. It's awesome. I love it. But what does that look like realistically to trust Jesus? I want to give you five things today very quickly um, on what I think it means to trust Jesus. Number one, trusting Jesus means letting go of control. Someone say amen. amen. Hear me today. You can have faith or you can have control, but you can't have both. Say that again. I will say it again. <laughs> you can have faith or you can have control, but, but realistically, you cannot have both. You cannot say, I have faith in God, but I want to control this situation. Okay, you control what you can control. But how many know there comes a time in a situation when that line gets crossed and you almost have to put your hands up and say, this is now out of my control. Okay, parents, I, I, there's a reality check of having kids live in your house up until a certain point. And then when they're out on your own, their own, you're always there for them. But there's almost a part of you where like, okay, their decisions now are out of my control. That's a tough pill to swallow, but I think that's what trusting Jesus looks like. Look, let's look back at verse four. The psalmist says, for you have maintained my just cause. You sat on a throne giving righteous judgment. In other words, the psalmist says, my cause in life is maintained by God. He's the source of my life and he is the maintainer of my life. Okay, your spirit came from God. Someone say amen to that. Okay, your body came from the ground. Well, it came from your mother, but you get it. God created man from the dust of the ground, the Bible says. So it makes sense that you, your body came from ground. That's why it's, it's sustained by things of the ground. That's why you need water and you need food and you need to eat and you need to grow vegetables and fruit. And this is how originally people just started eating when they're growing things, right? And, 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 and eventually we started processing stuff and then we started making it all crazy how it is today. And... Um, it's fascinating when I was thinking about this, though, because your body came from God. I'm sorry, your body came from the ground, so it's sustained by things from the ground, but your spirit came from God. That means your spirit has to be sustained by the things of God. That means that you have to put your trust not in the food you eat, but in the fact you get in the spiritual word of God and you feed on who he is. 
Okay, so we have to know that trusting Jesus means letting go of control. Mark Sharonoff says this, if you worry too much about what might be and wonder too long about what might have been, you will ignore or completely miss what is. Letting go of control, first step to trusting Jesus. Letting go of your future and what you think it should be and just saying, God, wherever you send me is where I want to be. You know, I had a friend recently, I asked him, I go, what do you believe in God for? Like, what's an open door you're believing for? And he said, any open door that God opens is where I want to go. And I'm like, okay, well, what does that mean? (laughs) And he basically says, I trust Jesus that wherever he sends me is where I'm supposed to be. And I can't control some things, but I am going to be thankful that where he places me is where I'm supposed to be. So trusting Jesus looks like letting go of control. Number two, trusting Jesus means not returning evil for evil. This is kind of tough in today's world, huh? Because typically people get known and people are heard by their retaliations. And whenever someone makes a comment or a suggestion, there's always another party there or another camp or another group that says, well, we have a response for that. But I would like to submit to you as a Christian, our job is not to return evil because evil was done to us. Look what the Bible says, Romans chapter 12. It says, live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly and never be wise in your own sight. I looked up the original Greek translation for never. It means never. (laughs) Never be wise in your own sight. The command of scripture is even when you're tempted to think you're all that. Don't be wise in your own eyes. I'm always looking for suggestions. I'm always looking for help. I'm always open for someone to step in. It's a command from Paul. He's basically saying, you ought to not try to be something you're not and be okay with asking for help. Verse 17, here it is. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, if possible, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. You may feel entitled to retaliate, but you are trusting God when you don't, because one day vengeance belongs to him, and those that hurt his heart, yes, we feel the repercussions of it, but he is ultimately the one that will deal with it. That takes trust. That takes trust to not try to force Jesus down someone's throat just because you're worried about their eternity. And every day you're like, you need Jesus, you need Jesus. It takes trust to now let the Holy Spirit work instead of just knocking it down their face. Are you hearing me today? Don't repay evil for evil. Number three, trusting Jesus also looks like loving your enemies. Loving your enemies. Your enemy, according to, to Jesus, is anybody that is opposing God in their mind. Okay, your enemy is not just people that you choose to be their enemy because they hurt you. Man, they're, 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 they're my enemy now because they're my competition. Or they're my enemy because they took one of my employees. It's like, no, biblically, an enemy is anyone that is in opposition to God. Wow. Okay? People came to Jesus one time and they were like, don't you see that guy over there? He's baptizing more people than us. What should we do? And Jesus is like, who cares? Anyone that's not you know, against us is for us. Let him do his thing. The enemies are those that are resisting God, rebelling against God by choice, okay? And Jesus says that we shouldn't label them as enemies. He actually says we're supposed to love them. Look what it says, chapter five of Matthew's gospel, verse 43, giving you some word today. Here it says, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. 
So he goes, this is kind of the popular position here amongst Judaism, kind of an Old Testament principle. He goes, you guys have heard, like, love your neighbor, but hate your enemy. And look what he says, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And he tells us why we do this. 45 says, so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. So God has a a benevolence kind of love for the entire world. Okay, there's different types of love. You know how we say like God loves you. Okay, on a real theological level, what does that mean? Because God loves the world that he gave his only begotten son. And God loves the world that he makes it rain on the just and the the unjust. But there's a special covenantal love that he has for those that put our faith in Jesus. So loving our enemies means not just labeling them as someone that's against us, but getting close enough to them to show that love. How do I do that, Billy? How do I show the love of Jesus? It starts by getting around people that aren't like you. Because once you get around someone that's not like you, you're forced to go to a place in yourself you haven't gone. And now you have to put yourself in shoes that maybe you've never even thought about wearing. I was talking to our men yesterday at our men's breakfast, and I was saying, you know, every man needs an older man and a younger man in their life. Because young men are like sails. We're like sails on a boat. You know what I mean? I'm, I say we because I think I'm still young. You know what I'm saying? Okay. okay. Sails, there's just a lot of passion, a lot of drive. Older men are like rudders. They give direction. Okay, every life needs a sail and a rudder, something to push you ahead, but something to direct you. You get a bunch of young men together, it's just a bunch of sails, no direction. We're all passionate, running around doing stuff, not really going anywhere. Get a bunch of older men together, they're just hanging out on the dock with their rudders, talking about the good old days. But something happens when people come together and we try to live together. And even though we're different, we sit together. That grows you, even with your enemies. Can you sit with your enemies? Because I would say it like this. If you learn to sit with Judas, you'll learn to love like Jesus. Because Judas was an enemy of God. He's a disciple, walked with Jesus, followed everything. But the Bible says Satan entered him. And that all of a sudden he started scheming against Jesus and how to turn him in. In that moment when Satan entered him, he became an enemy. And you don't think Jesus knew He literally was at the Last Supper and he says, one of y'all is going to betray me and it's going to be whoever puts the bread into the wine next. (laughs) I would have been very nervous to take a bite right there. I would have said, you take a bite first. (laughs) But he knew it was Judas. He knew it was Judas. He knew that Judas was going to betray him, but he still sat with him. He still shared his love with him and he still still showed him who, who he was. Most people, once they're an enemy, you don't even show them who you are anymore. Even after Judas became an enemy to Jesus, he still showed the love of God to who he is. And so make sure that you're loving your enemies. Number four, as I close, pray for your persecutors. All in the same passage, Jesus says, love your enemies and pray for your persecutors. Scripture says in Psalm chapter 9, verse 7, but the Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for justice and he judges the world with righteousness and he judges the peoples with uprightness, okay? When, when you are being persecuted, this means there is some sort of thing being taken because of your faith. Now, persecution comes on many different levels and it's hard to talk about persecution in America when still in certain parts of the world, Christians can't even be there without being killed. 
But I will say that you, you, you got blindfolds on if you think in the last five years being a Christian hasn't gotten more controversial. And, and this, this hasn't been tested more than ever. I sit and talk with young people and they cry to me saying that their friends know they're Christians and their friends are against Christianity and how do they deal with that tension? You know, I sit with older people that tell me they, they don't want to force Jesus down their grandkids' throats, but at the same time, like, you know, how do I deal with the fact they think I'm crazy because I'm a Christian and go to church? And so although persecution in certain parts of the world means death, for you and I, it could mean death one day. But until then, we must understand there's real things that people have against us because we're Christians. During World War II, there was a German pastor named Dietrich Bonhoeffer who was pastoring a church in Germany when kind of the Nazi revolution started. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a man of God. He taught the scriptures faithfully. You can read about him today. He's got books out. You can read all of his work out there. And when Nazi, Nazis first invaded and where he was, he made sure that his congregation got out. And he helped kind of get people out before, you know, they would be caught for not basically agreeing with Hitler. Not Jewish people, Christians, German Christians that were against what the Nazis were doing. And then as he was leading people out, the Spirit of God told him to go back in. He said this very famously, he said, there will come a time when the confession of a living God will not only cause hatred against us, but it will also result in ostracism from society. The world cannot live side by side with us because what we say and do, whether we intend to or not, is perceived by the world as condemnation on them. So Dietrich Bonhoeffer would say, there's coming a time where people are gonna hate us for our beliefs and they're gonna ostracize us for our beliefs, not because our beliefs are wrong, but because they take our beliefs as condemnation. And they think just because we can't budge on the word of God, that means we disagree with everything they're about. And I'm sorry, friends, love is telling people something even when it hurts to tell them. I would rather hurt somebody in the moment by speaking the truth than harm their life long term by letting them go a road that no one stopped them going down. Oh, I feel the anointing this morning. There's got to be something in us that realizes what Dietrich realizes. It's now just happening. People are going to see our beliefs and misunderstand them. And how we respond demonstrates if we have Jesus or not. So I want to love people well. And when people come against me, I want to pray for them. There's a man named William Tyndale, 1500s, that believed that the Bible should be mass produced in English. And eventually he was burned at the stake. This is in England in the 1500s. William Tyndale, if you have a New Living Translation Bible, his name is probably on the side of your Bible. But he believed that if the Bible didn't get mass produced in English, the gospel would not spread through England. And, and they came and uh, they took him away. Eventually he was arrested and tried on October 6, 1536. He was strangled and burned at the stake. And his last prayer as he was praying was, Lord, open the king of England's eyes. As he's dying, his prayer was, open the king of England's eyes. Three years later, King Henry VII, the eighth, excuse me, required every church in England to have an English Bible. At the stake, it was persecution. Three years later, it was the fulfillment of his prayer. That's why we pray for our persecutors, because you don't know what's on the other side of your persecution. 
You don't know that when someone comes against you, they're coming against the living God inside of you. And you don't have to fight for yourself. You can let this living God defend you. Huh. Pray for your persecutors. Pray for those that call you crazy. Pray for those that make fun of you. Pray for those that ostracize you. Pray for those. You know, I was talking to someone in our community and they said their son had graduated high school and wanted to put something in about Jesus. And when it came time for this person to read what the student had wrote, they just skipped the part about Jesus. I mean, we're not dying at the stake, but that feels a little weird. We got to pray for those people. And you know why we do that? Because leave me my last point. Number five, trusting Jesus means living for later. You know how we can deal with persecution in the present? It's because our lives are focused on later. Not like tomorrow, because Jesus said, tomorrow has enough troubles, focus on today. I mean like eternity. We don't live for this life. We live for eternity. We don't make decisions because we're trying to best get through this life. We make decisions because it matters for eternity. People get baptized. You know why we set up baptisms whenever someone will do it? Someone told me that. They were like, you know, my last church, we only do it like twice a year. And I was like, well, if someone wants to do it, we'll do it because it's eternity on the line here. I want to make sure we're about eternity. Psalm chapter 90 says this, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth and ever you had formed the earth from the world, watch this, from everlasting to everlasting you are God. E Eternity is, is, is really big. Joe, can you take this for me? Just start walking that way. E Eternity is really big. I would say uh, this orange rope here represents eternity. Out of your view. And God tells us, I've been the God from the, begin from the end to the beginning, from everlasting to everlasting. I'm Alpha and Omega. He says, I'm, I'm in between it all, and I'm at the end of it all, and I am it all. And so this is what we're living for, eternity. Now, you know what your life looks like, your lifespan in comparison to eternity? This little blue tape here is about what your life will be. 75, 85 some of y'all are going to go to 120, I believe it. But this is what our life is in comparison to eternity. So that means the decisions I make with this affect what happens with this. That means the way I love and treat people here has an effect on what this looks like later. Living for later means not worrying about the suffering here because it leads to a glory that can't be contained here, okay? Suffering in this life is just a setup for glory in the next life. But unfortunately, thank you, bro. Unfortunately, many people think there's glory in this life for them. And they're wanting to know, where's my glory in this life? And I'm sorry, it's only God that gets glory. One day, he will say to us, well done, good and faithful servant. And he will reward us for the life we've lived. It's not the why we live it, but we do it because we know that eternity matters. It's a scripture in the New Testament. I think I got one more here I wanna show you from 1 Peter. It says, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. 
so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. And so Peter is talking about your sanctification. And he's basically saying, once you meet Jesus, spend the rest of the time in your flesh, not living for human stuff, not living for the blue tape of stuff. Live with eternity in mind for the will of God. You might be in some trouble today. Can God trust you with it, that you'll trust him through it? I think sometimes God trusts us with accepting the season we're in, and then we need to trust him with carrying us through that season. Who am I preaching to this morning? Don't avoid what you're in. Could be a chance to trust God like you never have before.